Hey, I'm Ruben from Dub. Welcome to Connection Loop, our actionable podcast about building businesses with daily human connections. Connection Loop features long form interviews with fascinating people in sales, marketing, and beyond. Enjoy today's episode and learn more about Dub at dub.com. Hey guys, it's Ruben from Dub, the video communication platform. Um, this is our go-to podcast, sort of a new effort, and we've been having a lot of fun with this. We've met some great people. Today we have Hannah Moyer on the line. So she comes to us with some phenomenal experience in content strategy, sort of social ad development. She's from Orange County, which is also in Southern California. She's also a podcast host and a writer. So Hannah, I'd love to learn a little bit about you. Hello, yes, thank you so much for having me. I am currently head of paid media at a digital marketing agency in Orange County called Blue Light Media. We work primarily with uh, consumer packaged goods, supplements, and um, SaaS platforms. And so um, in my role, I do both strategize and implement and work with a creative team to come up with the best ads that'll work for our clients and test it out. And yes, I did start out as a writer. I started writing blog posts for $7.50 each and worked my way up. I was a full-time freelancer for a time and that's how I actually met my um, the owners of the agency now and then I've just worked my way up through account management and then now head of paid that's awesome so you used to write blog posts for seven dollars and fifty cents talk to me about that was that through like a Fiverr service or what was that through that's awesome yeah so I in college I went to school for broadcasting and digital media and so in college I wanted to get some more experience wanted to work on my resume get some money on the side and so I don't recommend writing for seven dollars and fifty cents an article it's very low but it got me in. Um, and so every client thereafter has built off, off of that first client that I was doing $7.50 articles for. Um, and so it was on its um, Odesk, which is now part of Upwork. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, definitely just bringing in more clients. I met my now boss on Twitter five years ago, um, which is the ROI of social media, if anyone is wondering. Wow. Um, That's me. awesome. Um, yeah. So I'm just, a, I'm a huge proponent of just really testing everything out on yourself and making opportunities for you. The barrier to entry on social media and just content creation in general is so low. And that's something that I've personally experienced. And obviously, I mean, I'm in my role now and I'm in Southern California right now because I was tweeting about digital marketing because I was working at Starbucks um, after graduation and I knew I needed to have an example of my work, um, even if I wasn't working with a brand. And so that is how I got to here today. Okay, cool. We're going to talk about Starbucks in a little bit. I have this, <laughs> I have this really important question that I've been meaning to ask. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that's, that has at least at one point been employed by Starbucks, so I'm going to drop that in a little bit. Um, I really appreciate your sort of origin story. You know, being a writer, um, we're all writers. At least we all have to be writers, right? Mm -hmm. Because typically, traditionally, everything has started from the writing format. You know, we come up with a concept, we come up with an outline, and then from that, it evolves into something larger. Now there's so many different mediums and platforms and way that we can communicate, like whether it's video or animations or audio or podcasts, you know, um, the sky's the limit, you know. I think I really suffered from being, considering my, myself a writer years and years ago. And then I sort of, one day I realized that, you know what, if I want to communicate, I want to get out there, I have to write. So that's, mm -hmm. that's awesome. I really appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. It's just so important. One of my college professors was always like, you, like, I don't care necessarily what avenue you're looking to take, but you need to be a writer and you have to be able to communicate effectively. And that's one of the biggest takeaways of like, even though I am a writer, sometimes I'll like reread an email that I wrote. It's like, oh, I need to like make sure like clarify and like use grammar and everything and just making sure that everything is within the right format and just know how to communicate your idea effectively. And that's so important. 
Yeah, that makes total sense. I started to realize that I got into that flow when writing emails a lot, which was that I would spend a lot of time rewriting my emails. And one day I said, wow, there needs to be a better way, which is actually one of the reasons why Dub came about. It's just the ability to shoot a video instead of writing an email. That was sort of one of the earliest use cases. But um, yeah, definitely. You know, but at the end of the day, it always starts with writing. So that's cool. So one of the things that I also found really interesting was the fact that you were being employed to write articles for marketers and for brands and for people that wanted to get content out there. And, you know, I mean, you have great education. You're obviously a great writer. You're a great communicator. What's really interesting is that I don't think people realize that that's a great way to get started in terms of people mm -hmm. talk, well, I can't afford a professional writer or I can't afford some expensive blog writing service. Like speak to that. I mean, give people some advice on how they can take a small budget using sites like Odesk or Upwork or Fiverr and how they can just get started immediately with content marketing. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's, um, especially like when you're going on Upwork, I mean, you don't want to automatically kind of discount the cheap writers because some of the writers are really good. And we've hired writers on there for clients before that have been really good. So sometimes you do get what you pay for. And then other times people just honestly don't know their value and you can get a really high quality writer for a lower cost. Um, one of the most important things you need to look for is that they can communicate in your brand voice. So we used to work for a couple dental labs and I know so much about dental restorations and dental implants and everything because I would just had to live and breathe that brand. And so you really want to make sure that you're hiring someone who has experience, not necessarily in your industry, but that they know how to take on a brand voice and to speak in an educated way about your product. Cause you don't want someone who has no idea and either going far too basic or just kind of spinning off what's on your website. Like they need to be able to take it and then not just copy and paste it and then put it into an eloquently talk about it in a blog post. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, how did you do your, your research? I mean, if you had to take a, a piece of content and then you had a finite amount of time, of course you had your sort of hourly kind of rate or hourly sort of wage in mind, what amount of time would you spend doing research and then doing the actual writing? What was the average sort of percentage of research and writing? Ooh, that's a great question. So early on, whenever you're first working with a brand, obviously you're trying to get on board with exactly the brand voice and the knowledge about the products and everything like that. So then it would probably be about 50% research and 50% writing, if not more research. And then the more and more that we got into working with these clients, like I could write about XYZ dental implant um, without needing to do much research just because I had that much brand experience. So it really does kind of vary by amount of time that we've been working with them. And then also just my personal knowledge. So um, I used to um, freelance with an agency. And so they would have me write some marketing pieces for them monthly as well. And so that was always very easy to write because I know about marketing. I didn't have to do any research. It just largely depends on the individual goals and how much knowledge you have about it. Got it. That, that makes total sense. So let's talk social. Let, let's get social. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So social has been, um, I mean, I feel like within the last three to six months, I mean, so many things have popped off. I mean, Instagram TV, you know, new ratio sizes on Facebook, some of the lead gen ads that I think are really doing well on Facebook mm -hmm. and LinkedIn. Um, some of the kind of story format, some of the more sort of ephemeral stuff. I mean, what is your state of the union in terms of, of social? What have you seen? What are the new trends? You know, what should people avoid? What should people experiment with? 
Oh man, that's a huge question. I think at its core, pay to play is becoming a lot more important. It's been important on Facebook, um, but especially now as we kind of look at Instagram and see how engagement has been crunching down on that, it's very important that people have a paid media budget and that they know how to track purchases. Because if you don't know the success of your advertising budget, then you are potentially just throwing money into the wind. So that's something that we really focus on at Blue Light is knowing exactly how we can track success. And then also being very clear about the limitations because some of our clients are on platforms that we just can't track very well. And so um, it's definitely paid is definitely an important part of it. Of course, I say that because I'm in paid media, um, but it's also becoming a lot more of a personal niche platform. So if we look at, for example, Instagram, like you can't just uh, randomly pick an influencer because you decide that you want to do influencer marketing. The brand has to know exactly what their goals are. They have to invest. We always recommend investing at least three months into an influencer marketing strategy and then being very clear about the type of influencers that they want and focusing on more of the micro scale. So about 10 to 50,000 followers per account, rather than these larger accounts that tend to have less engaged followings. Because if you think about it, for example, Kylie Jenner, like she has however many millions of followers and most people just follow her because they're interested in the shenanigans that she's getting herself into. But if they follow more of like a beauty influencer with maybe 12,000 um, followers, they would be more likely to engage with them because it's more of like a face-to-face real life person type of type of thing. Um, so I definitely think the personalization and the also just being willing to invest money into a paid media strategy and also depending on where you're coming from, um, LinkedIn is a really important, it's kind of having a resurgence and it's really important for both personal branding and then also just, um, really being able to connect with people. Um, someone I know through the owner of the company, Brittany Crystal, she's all about LinkedIn personal branding. She's very knowledgeable in the space. She's worked with Gary Vee and um, large personal brands. And she has seen how it worked, has worked for her brand. And she's creating content off of that and just learning how to brand yourself, whether you work for a company or not, is incredibly important on social media these days. Yeah. So, I mean, there's some great like nuggets of information in there. I mean, we talked yeah, just about- just went off for like two minutes. So sorry for ranting. Love it. Love it. No, no, no. That was great. That gave me a lot of fuel, a lot of, a lot of good questions in here. I mean, the first thing is conversion tracking. So I'm like an old school UTM kind of URL parameters, get, get all your attribution as best as possible. But it, it's so hard to do because so much of social is you see an ad and you don't necessarily click on it, but something enters your mind. And then later, maybe you see something else. Maybe you see a retargeting ad or you hear about it word of mouth. And then you actually just go to the domain. You just enter the URL. I mean, the vast majority of the signups that we get at, at Dub are just organic. There's no UTM parameters whatsoever. So what are kind of some best practices in this day and age? I mean, for e-commerce, it's probably the easiest because, you know, you've got a really short funnel and hopefully someone converts within exactly. know, 20 minutes or 60 minutes. But what if it's, you know, a, a SaaS platform like Dove or what if it's a, you know, a, a contact form or what if it's something even kind of larger, like just pick up a phone or just learn about us? Definitely. Yes. Yeah. So one of the things that we focus on a lot is looking at correlation. And now this isn't specific data, but if we look at the sales reports, we look at Google Analytics, we look at the actual sales and we look at the Facebook metrics, we can begin to pull, get an idea of, okay, we did this action on June 15th. And then on June 25th, we've seen a resurgent, we've seen a surge in traffic and sales. So it's not necessarily perfect, but it's working within the, the constrictions of our clients' platforms. We have another client that's on Shopify. And so between Shopify and Facebook, there's some great integrations, there's great filters, and you can set it up in a way that it is fairly easy to track. And exactly what you said about sometimes people just don't convert from a Facebook ad. And cross-device conversion is, because, is a difficult thing to track these days. Um, and so 
I think we do as much as we can to track it. We use UTM parameters. We um, look at, we do as much as we can within kind of like looking at Facebook's add to carts and ROAS and everything. Um, but ultimately it is tricky. And we try to just look at as much data as we can and just use critical thinking. And then hopefully in the future, um, it'll get better. It is kind of amusing that we can do all of this tracking and we still go, oh, no, no, no. We still can't determine this one conversion point, which is important. Um, but we already can do so much with data that um, we also need to acknowledge like where we are and what we can do and then just kind of see how we can work around those limitations. That's really well said. I I've noticed, um, you know, with Google Chrome, they've done a really good job at the kind of browser profile linking. So when I'm on desktop and I'm actually looking, you know, I'm using Chrome. Chrome, then I'll notice that there's a little icon that says, hey, your Chrome, you know, browser on your mobile device is open as well. So these things aren't linked. There's no Bluetooth. Maybe they're on the same Wi-Fi, but it's probably some device idea. It's probably my Google account. So, you know, I've always wondered, I think they do a great job of connecting mobile desktop. But my question is, do they give us the same technology from an advertising perspective? Like if someone sees an ad for dub.com and a retargeting ad and then they on their desktop and then they go to their mobile and sign up, is is there going to be some cross device conversion tracking? Because I mean, that's where the future is. Like that's what I, what I think is going to be the most valuable for advertisers. So a similar example to, um, to what you just said is, for example, with programmatic. So if there's a digital physical display in a mall and it's very expensive, but companies can track, okay, this person from a device ID saw this ad and then they walked in and purchased. So again, very expensive to match, but it is possible. And so the fact that it is getting to a place where it's possible means that it will at some point begin to decrease in cost as more people figure out the technology. Um, and this is something that I'm working on improving our process on this as well. And I'm definitely by no means an expert on cross device conversions. I'm working on it. Um, but yeah, it's definitely important to be able to like use the technology at hand and also realize where your limitations are. So then you can account for them because the worst thing is to have a limitation and not realize that you have it. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of work to be done there. If we really want to <laughs> track conversions, you know, Google and then the now. more data security, like it's, we're almost going backwards if you think about it. Oh it's, like, yeah. Depending on how much that affects everything with Google's changes in data privacy and how people can delete their browsing info, like that also have an impact. Right. Well, it's, yeah, it's like the, uh, the allow sort of, you know, acceptance for GDPR when you go to a site, if you actually click don't allow or the little X button, what, what does that actually do for most sites? Does it wipe all the tracking or is I've actually never tried that. <laughs> yeah. I, I always assume that you would just like wouldn't be able to use the site. Right. I mean, I at some point I'm going to have to, uh, exactly. At some point, the next time I see one of those, I'm going to commit myself to using the, the ghostery um, ad tracking app and then click don't allow and then do an AV test to see if the scripts actually do not load. <laughs> Let me know what happens. I, I will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, influencer marketing. Yes. So that's a whole thing. And it's, I think there's been some good feedback and there's been some not so good feedback. There's some great articles that came out on, you know, the crash of the influencer marketers. <laughs> you know, I really like how you, you articulated really nicely that, you know, you want to go for those hyper niche influencers with the, I think you said 10,000 to 50,000 followers mm -hmm. that have that true engagement. You know, I'd love to hear a couple of pointers in that realm, but also, you know, have you had success? stories? Have you had nightmare stories? What's that look like? Yeah. So um, we, let's see where to start. I think um, tips for a good influencer campaign. I already, had already mentioned, you want to at least make it at least three months um, and have in the influencers post more than just once. Because if you remember, people need to see something more than once in order to be fully converted and to order, in order to make that sale. So by 
having them post, for example, twice a month for three months and then have a couple Instagram stories thrown in, um, that might be a little bit more expensive, but you have a three month long commitment of them continually creating new content relating to your product. And then that will increase the chances of conversion because their followers are going to see it more often. So when we see brands that only have, for example, a one month campaign with two influencers who only posted one newsfeed post and a couple stories, they go, oh, it didn't work. Then, okay, well, how, I mean, it's kind of wasn't set up for success from the beginning. So you really want to take a look at it from the start. You want to know what you can offer because offering, I mean, even 10 or 20% off your product is going to be a more of an inducement to the follower to purchase than if you just say, oh, use my code, but then they don't get anything. And so the code is a way to track how successful that specific influencer was. And then it's also a way to encourage people to purchase. And then your hope or our hope as the agency is that the product and the user experience will be good enough that they'll then want to fully convert and become a repeat customer. Um, so definitely planning it out, keeping a long-term view of it, and then also look for influencers. The benchmark right now that we use is one to 3% engagement. So you oh. take the number, it's the number of comments plus the number of likes, divide that by the number of followers, multiply that by a hundred. So um, it's a little bit of a formula, but using that engagement rate um, will help you determine how exact, just how engaged their followers are. And you also want to look and see, are do their followers look real? Do they seem to have bot comments? I like using Social Blade to see how often, or if they have bought followers in the past. Um, if you see giant spikes, it could be a contest. It also could be that they bought followers. So you definitely want to see it kind of look at past influencer campaigns they've done and just look at as much data as you can have. There are platforms available to look at some of this data, but they tend to be more expensive. So if you're just starting out with influencer marketing, just kind of manually go through accounts and look at hashtags relating to your niche. And then really just start to look for top influencers who have those uh, more engagement rates. And by top influencers, Again, keeping it to the niche of they seem to be engaged. They're talking about products that they really appear to believe in and um, that they really match your brand story. The worst thing to do is to have an influencer that doesn't really match your brand story because it's not going to be authentic. And as Instagram continues to grow and evolve, authenticity is going to be the most important thing. Yeah, okay, so one to 3% engagement rate. I think that's really tactical there. I mean, if folks are looking at a certain influencer and they wanna determine if they're a good fit for their brand, number one is make sure that they match the brand, make sure that they've had some success stories in the past, and then to see kind of where they're at and how quote unquote authentic they are, look for a one to, I think you said a one to 3% mm -hmm. uh, engagement rate, which is just the number of likes, comments, I guess, shares divided by the number of followers. Yes. And right? then um, multiply that by a hundred, actually get a percentage, but yeah, exactly. kind of like move the decimal point. Um, yeah. And I think another important thing is to look at the types of comments that are on these posts. If there's a lot of emoji based comments, those are likely bots. And obviously there are some people that, for example, I get bot comments on my own post. They're not me purchasing them, but you can also go out and you can purchase likes and you can purchase followers and you can purchase comments. And so you really want to look and see if those comments are really, um, if they're realistic, if they're relating to the posts. Like the funniest thing on Instagram slash the saddest is when you see someone with this really heartfelt post of a sharing about something in their life and then someone says, great photo, and it's a quote image or something like that. Like you want to make sure Hot they're authentic content. photos. Exactly. Or like a bunch <laughs> of emojis or something. So you right. really want to focus on um, really kind of looking at all the different data points that you have to see how authentic it is. 
Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I gotta tell you, I've been a little bit turned off with Instagram lately. I feel like when, when I go look for the engagement, because I mean, the engagement is my, my favorite part. When I go to comments on Facebook or LinkedIn, that is where, especially Reddit, actually. I mean, that's where all the gold nuggets are. That's a great point. Reddit is definitely is definitely growing. I think it's going to be yeah. a really great part to use. And, you know, I've learned so much, just really brutally honest comments. I mean, especially sometimes I'll even click on an ad if I see a lot of comments that it has. And I'll actually see what people are saying about the ad, you know, if they're buying it or if they see right through it, you know, especially a lot of the kind of like the clickbaity, um, the clickbaity ones that we're seeing, um, people are engaged and it's amazing. But the problem is that when I go to Instagram, I never see really good engagement. I mean, maybe I'm not following the right people, but I see a lot of bots. I see the emojis and I see the, Hey, hot contact, you know, great wall. I mean, I just see all those sort of generic comments. You know, I, I don't know if, I mean, I'm sure the folks at Facebook and you know, the Instagram, you know, and I'm sure they're aware of this. I'm sure that they're just going through this hyper growth situation. So they're not necessarily turning it off, but at the same time, you know, something's got to change, you know? Yeah. They definitely have cracked down on bots over the past couple of months. Um, yeah, and it's definitely, yeah, they have, but it is tricky because they're crunching engagement because they want you to purchase ads early as that's what my cynical opinion is. No, um, that's realistic. I mean, it, it makes sense. Like they need revenue and I totally get that. But again, it is a free platform. So people expect engagement right away. And in some ways, Instagram might just not be the best platform to use. We've been seeing with a couple of the, the SaaS platforms that we work with that Instagram isn't really moving the needle for them at all. And so we're looking more at Google ads or Twitter. Um, we've had a lot of success with Twitter for one of our SaaS platform clients um, or even LinkedIn. And so just kind of thinking that like you don't necessarily have to be on Instagram if it's not the right place. So you want to look at your goal customer, know where they live online and know kind of the demographics and psychographics and then go from there. Yeah, that makes total sense. All right. So here's here's a crazy one. We're going to kind of switch switch gears here a little bit. All right. So there's kind of a conspiracy theory that <laughs> um, at Starbucks that they miswrite your name, especially if you're a celebrity, because it's a beautiful Instagram photo. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, there's so much, well, quasi Starbucks dirt I could share. Um, <laughs> the one thing I will say is that the more that someone emphasized how to spell their name, the more I screwed it up. Um, <laughs> it was usually in like the seventh hour of my eight hour shift that I did that. I think it's honestly like real talk is that if you're at a busy Starbucks, they don't necessarily care. Like we always spell spelled phonetically. So if someone did take care in telling us, like we would try to, but at the same time, like we, we have times that we have to reach. And so we just write as similar to his name as possible. And then I think the, the ones that get really crazy, it's like, that's just people trolling usually. Um, but if you're at a good, at the right type of store, then they're just trying to get drinks out as fast as possible while also maintaining a good customer experience. And sometimes it just, it happens. I mean, as much as we would like to spell everything correctly, um, speaking as a former partner, not current, it's just kind of, it happens, but <laughs> Former partner. I mean, that's, Former that's partner. a great, that's a great title. Oh yes. See, we are not employees. We are partners. <laughs> that, I mean, that's pretty cool. I mean, overall, what's the experience like just in terms of a partner? I how was at such a great store. So I could have, I was part-time and then I kind of moved up to full-time, but because I was 22, 23 at the time, I was still on my parents' insurance. So I didn't need any of the benefits um, except for the free coffee. I definitely took advantage of that. 
overall, like if you're at a store with a great manager, which I was, and I'm still friends with her today, you can have an incredible experience. I opened, so that meant going in at 4.30 every morning. And I mean, it was crazy, but we also like, we had our regulars and they were amazing and you work with the right people and you can have anything be a good experience. Very cool. Talk to me about Candidly Caffeinated. Yes, that is my podcast talking about creativity and the honest conversations that not many people want to have. So we talk about everything from burnout to imposter syndrome to purpose to finding to whether you're, uh, what you're doing is worth it and um, how hard you should be working and just kind of really looking at a lot of those questions that I wasn't really finding answers to and I was having a lot of conversations with some of my fellow creatives about it. And I'd had a podcast with a friend of mine a couple years ago. And so was, I was looking for something to go outside of my comfort zone. And I knew that a solo podcast would be that. And yeah, it's been a little over a year and I've loved it. It's definitely small, but I just enjoy this, uh, using my creativity for something that isn't necessarily tied to my income. So it's, I, it's not sponsored. It's just, I do it out of generosity and love that I have for the creative community. I'm just really focusing on helping people. Very cool. Um, all right. Give me some help. So lately I've been experiencing a little bit of burnout and just the backstory dub has been a very fun, very fast, but very, very challenging journey. And, um, you know, we pivoted a number of times really until we found product market fit. And during that era, I mean, I've had a lot of my own personal trials and tribulations and went through a lot of sort of challenges. And, um, you know, lately I feel, which I think is really good. Like I got back into the gym a week ago for the first time, I think in about a year. Nice. That's part of it. That's got to get back into it. Right. And I feel like that was like my first step to kind of overcome this feeling of exhaustion and being tired and being burned out. Now I'm so passionate about what I do and I love working with people and speaking and traveling and all that stuff. But, but at the same time, you know, it takes a toll on you. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. so help me out. Oh man, actually my last episode was just on burnout. Um, <laughs> now I'm trying to remember what I said. So <laughs> I think a big part of it is first admitting that you're burned out because I think okay. a lot of us as creatives, we tend to just work, work, work and ignore the fact that we do need to maybe take a break. Um, when I was feeling burned out about the podcast, it was usually because I wasn't preparing very well. So I would leave all my preparation until the weekend. So I release on, um, I record and release on Sundays. Sunday nights. And so I would leave all of my prep. I script out my episodes. That would be like 16 to 1800 words that I would have to write and just doing all of that within like a day and a day and a half. And that's just not sustainable. So I changed my work habits. I try to start, try being the operative board, try to start preparing earlier in the week and having kind of a, just keeping a running list of ideas that I want to work on. Um, so that's what has helped for me also just taking a step back and taking a break, which I realize is not always possible, especially in the stage of growth that you guys are at. Um, but even seeing if like, leave your phone at home and go out with the family on a weekend, on a weekend or something. Wait, did you just say leave my phone at home and not right? with me? It's a no. novel concept. That's I did that once. It was, <laughs> it was crazy. I felt a little like, I didn't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> I, you know, lately I've been, lately I've just been leaving it out of the room and just sort of in the kitchen just to get a charge. And that's actually helped me a lot. Yes. Even just like having that physical separation, whether it's like eight feet or into another room or something is such a big difference. Like you start to feel a little anxious, but then you're like, no, I can like go to the bathroom and not bring my phone with me. Like, it's okay. So I think that that's a really big part of it. And just is going to sound cheesy, but again, like just remembering why you started. It's one of my favorite lines. And there's a reason why you started Dub. And so there's a reason why you're doing all of this every day and why you're growing the team and why you have the company, even though you're in a stage of growth where it might be a little difficult to take a step back, or I think it's always important to 
remember why you wanted to start this in the first place and then um, just kind of keep that like front of mind um, with all of that. Cool. Um, and also at the same time, not trying to be an imposter. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. Talk to me about that imposter syndrome. Oh man, this is something that I, it was one of those moments that I thought that I was the only one struggling with it. And then I saw a blog post in college of what is imposter syndrome? And I realized that's me. Okay. More than just me or struggling with it. Like what a novel concept. So I think a big portion of it is learning to take up space. That's related to a Brene Brown quote about you weren't born to be small or you weren't meant to be small. Um, And just knowing that you do have value and you do have worth and you do know what you know. A big thing for me is if I'm in a room with someone that I sense or that I think knows more than me, I tend to doubt what I know. And so a lot of it is just having this refrain in your head of you know what you know, you're skilled, you're valued, you know what you're doing. Um, And then just really just repeating that over and over again. It's not definitely not like an easy thing to evolve after I recorded that episode last year. And I still like it's still something that I struggle with. I'm getting better at it. But I think as you think about more of the imposter syndrome, especially if you're starting a new role, you really just have to say, okay, I do know this. I am skilled. There's a reason they chose me for this role. There's a reason that I'm being successful in this. Mm-hmm. And then just really working on changing that inner inner monologue. So, I mean, how did this whole thing happen? When did it happen when people started to feel like this? I don't think this term really existed, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. Was this Is this a product of social media? Is it a product of us hitting record and putting our videos on the internet or like profile pictures? Or where's this from? I think the feeling is probably has been around for a long time, much longer than the actual term. Um, there's definitely... I'm assuming that their growth has started along with social media because you're no longer just comparing yourself to the people in the office or the people in your neighborhood. You're comparing yourself to millions of people online and you can see people's work. You can share your own, which is incredible, but it also opens up more pressure. So I definitely think it's been around for a long time, but the growth has definitely gone much faster now that social media is around. Well, it's, it's kind of the counter statement to this idea of fake it till you make it, you know? Mm-hmm. which is this, um, I, I think, completely antiquated term now where the whole premise is, you know, speak things into existence and lease the car, or lease the fancy car and, you know, put whatever you want on the internet just so that you impress people. But, you know, I, I think it's gone are those days because three clicks in, you go and you realize that that's not true and mm-hmm. it's kind of phony and you look at the engagement rate and it's 0.001% or you know you you realize that some other aspect of something about this person's life or their company is completely off so you know i think being authentic is i think one of the most important things i mean little shout out here to uh, Shannon Leonard, um, who works with me here at Dub, and he came up with this term, which I love. We actually made a whole YouTube video about it, which is be true and break through. And, I love that. That's great. <laughs> and you know, the premise is that, you know, fake it till you make it is out and lean into your authenticity, be as honest as you possibly can be. And just be real and people will connect to that because people love underdogs and people love the real sort of growth human stories and honesty. Definitely. I think one of a great example of this, one of our, the companies we're working with, um, it came out of a personal story for the founder. And for a while, she like, wasn't super comfortable with sharing her story. Uh, but then once we kind of convinced her and helped her share it, helped her write it, and we shared it on social media, it took off. And it's a really, it's a personal story about anxiety. And thankfully now the conversation around the anxiety and therapy and depression and mental illness in general, mental health in general is improving. But the fact that like we saw such a spike on those posts that shared her story, it just shows that authenticity is important. I mean, there's, you don't have to go around and shouting about all your weaknesses all the time. Like you want to talk about how your skills as well and where you thrive, but there's definitely is something to be said for that authenticity. 
Right, exactly. Yeah, I was I was at a dinner recently um, in New York, and I was there was someone at the table who said there was like six or seven folks at the table. We had never met uh, each other, a number of us at least. And you know, he said, "Hey, listen, everyone, go around the room, and uh, everyone go around the table, I should say, and just say one one or two things about yourself." without worrying about bragging. Just pretend like bragging didn't exist. Say your oh, best like story. <laughs> yeah. And it was interesting because what everyone was able to do was talk about themselves a little bit without feeling that, you know, oh my God, I'm showing off or I'm trying to yeah. be cool or I'm trying to pretend. And it was really interesting because you got some really unadulterated, pure stories about some some great success stories. I mean, a per, one person had a million followers on YouTube and another guy was a, a sort of a, a top 20 or 20 um, you know, entrepreneur in Canada. And there were some great personalities. But what I learned from that is that, you know, I feel like if you're authentic, if you're honest, if you're humble, it's okay to talk about yourself because I mean, you're on a path, you're on a mission, you're doing something. Just as long as you're authentic about it, I think people will accept it, you know, while still maintaining a complete aura of humility and, and like, you know, being genuine. I still feel like true stories, um, true expression is, you know, it, it should be unadulterated. you know? Definitely. Yeah. I think it's also really important to acknowledge how far you've come and just, I think a big part like my personality type, I just never tend to think any, I'm a perfectionist. I just never tend to think that anything I do is good enough, which sounds kind of depressing, but I've gotten to a point where it's like, okay, well, yes, if I think this about a project, but like, okay, let's list off the things that I am doing. I'm doing X, Y, Z. I have come this far in this short amount of time. And I think just the more that people focus on that. And again, like, yes, you need humility, but you also need to brag on yourself a little bit, whether to yourself, not necessarily online, but I would focus more on bragging to yourself or if you and a friend have a conversation talking about your achievements. I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, you mentioned living outside your comfort zone. You know, I think a lot of people suffer from that. A lot of people, they're complacent. We're complacent. You know, we find our comfortable place with our comfortable people that we're so used to in our little click and that's where we live. You know, I think about this actually having gone to now, I think three conferences in just a short amount of time um, between LA, San Francisco, Chicago, and New York. But what was interesting was that when you go to a conference, you know, I'm reminded that it's kind of like high school because yes. <laughs> you meet someone, maybe you go someone with someone that you know, and you kind of hang out at the table, you grab your beer, you grab your wine, you grab your hors d'oeuvres, and you chill at that table or at that spot, and you might not necessarily go and kind of break through and get out of your shell and network with people. And, you know, I was reminded of that, not to mention in giving a talk that I had a chance to do when I asked questions, it took a couple of seconds for people to feel comfortable and to just raise their hand and say, hey, listen, here's my question or completely call me out on something that I said that was incorrect, you know? Um, but I feel like when they break that sort of layer of, I don't know, is it fear or is it complacency, then all of a sudden that's where all the personality, you know, and the boldness can come out. Give Definitely. us some tips. How can we, how can we break out into our sort of risky, cool, fun place that's outside of our comfort zone? Yes, definitely. Also, I so relate to when um, you ask for questions at a conference session and then there's that terrifying 10 seconds before someone, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's the yeah. worst. Um, well, I, at, at that point, I jump off the stage and I'm like, all right, guys, let's do some yoga. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Get away from the center of the room. Um, yeah, I think uh, one of the more intriguing ideas about comfort zones that I've heard is, um, have you seen the movie Free Solo about Alex Honnold climbing El Cap in Yosemite? 
I, I can't wait to see it. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. So at one point he says, I don't think of it as being outside my comfort zone. I think of it as expanding my comfort zone. And I think that's a really important way to think about it because what could have been scary to me a year ago is not scary now. And so my comfort zone expands based on what I do. And so a lot of it is also just forcing yourself to do it. And it's not always easy, but I think just taking those little steps. For example, for me, getting outside my comfort zone with a podcast with a co-host was a big thing. And then I went outside my comfort zone and did a podcast with my own guest. I went outside my comfort zone when I accepted head of paid media. Like that wasn't something that I was necessarily expecting to do, but I've really taken on that challenge and I've grown. And I don't say this to brag. I say this as like kind of a personal example. Like it is possible to get outside your comfort zone on a regular basis. I think you, it is partially fear and it's partially complacency, like you said. And so I think a big part of it is just learning to be okay with feeling the fear, being ready to process those emotions, and then also wanting to not necessarily settle for a life of mediocrity. Not saying that you have to have a million followers, that you have to have a really successful company. It's you define success for what you want it to be. But at the same time, you need to make sure that um, in order to get outside of that comfort zone, that you're willing to uh, resist that complacency. Nice. All right. Changing gears a little bit. Um, oat milk, yay or nay? Ah, see, I can't actually do oats because I'm allergic. So I stick oh. with my almond milk or coconut milk. Oh, okay. Cool. Nice. I've heard it sounds good whenever I get coffee. It looks delightful, but I haven't tried it. <laughs> well, it's this whole movement. It's, it's actually blown up. It's been really- actually. Yeah. Oatly, I think, is the brand. I think we said it. Their the marketing right time. now is yeah. so good. They have yeah. some physical. They have some outdoor placements of like. Right. By the time you read this, you'll be blah blah blah. And oh, it's so good. Now, do you yeah. like oat milk? Um, you know what? I'm getting into it. I'm slowly okay. getting into it. Yeah, we actually work at a co-working space in Hollywood. At WeWork, actually, and they completely stopped serving milk whatsoever. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess so that makes I sense. A bunch of vegans. <laughs> well, what's interesting is that they have half and half. Okay. Um, but it is a very vegetarian forward company. Actually, at their at their events, they don't have. My understanding is that they don't have a lot of meat at their events. Interesting. Um, yeah. So there's definitely a movement away from dairy, and and I support that for a, n- a number of reasons. I think for me, it's about it's about flavor. It's about how does it mix. Mm-hmm. You know, with almond milk, I think I sort of suffer from the additives that they have to put to give it that thicker consistency. Yeah, you have to buy the right brand for sure. <laughs> right. And and what is the right brand? Um, I drink, well, okay. So Califia is the one that they don't have any um, carrageenans or anything. And I don't okay. think I pronounced that right. And then I also, the, if you go to a coffee shop and they have the Califia barista blend, it's nice and thick. So if you get like an almond milk latte, it's going to taste very rich and it's not going to be super watery like most almond milk. So I recommend that, or you can make your own, which just requires a blender and a strainer and some patience. Oh, okay. So what do you, <laughs> is that water and just blending? Water, some mm. almonds that were soaked for an hour in hot water, and then you blend it. You can add some dates for sweetness if you want, some cinnamon, and then like you get a little strainer bag, and then you just kind of squeeze it out over a container. It's really oh, good. It just- Yum. What do you do with the leftover almond dust? You can make crackers with it. So you just Ooh. spread it out on a sheet and then sprinkle it with salt and then cook it for a little bit. No oil, butter, flour, egg. No, just like just the almond pulp. I think you can add things into it if you want, but I typically just do the uh, just the almond pulp and then some salt. Nice. All right, cool. So here's uh, my toughest question. Oh gosh. <laughs> which is done, which is what is your most embarrassing story? Oh. Gosh, I had one yesterday. I know I can't remember what it was. Most <laughs> well, I don't think it was that embarrassing. Or you, <laughs> or you self-healed from it. Very true. 
Oh man, I feel like I have so many. Um, man, it should have given me some time to think about this. I <laughs> know I else? have them because I'm a very derpy person. It could be um, a college story. It could be a work story. It could be a Starbucks story. It could be a conference story. Conference story. Well, okay. So this is potentially not my most embarrassing, only for the reason I can't think of anything more embarrassing to share. But um, I was at a conference with my old business partner. This was back in Nashville. And we presented. It went okay. It was my first conference, so it wasn't amazing. And then I was talking to a friend a couple weeks later. He's like, yeah, I would never buy from your business partner. And I'm just like, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> so I was really embarrassed. I was like, oh my gosh, this is our company. And I don't say that to bash on him. It's just we weren't in the right position at the time. But it was definitely a thing of like, okay, wow, like the people around you impact people's opinions of you and to choose carefully. And I think just overall of, um, yeah, there's a lot of learning out of that season of life. <laughs> well, you know what? That, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, not all personalities are for all people, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. we connect to different types of people. That's totally healthy. I mean, I've sort of realized that in my career, in my life, that I, I'll connect to some people and others, maybe I won't. Maybe I'm too raw or gritty or, or unscripted or whatever it is. There's always going to be kind of that specific sort of connection of people. So Definitely. Yes. Case, case by case. I will think of a better one and I'll email you. <laughs> that is cool. All right. Awesome. Well, great. We talked about Starbucks. We talked about writing. We talked about conversion tracking, influencer yes. marketing. Some embarrassing we covered a lot. This is great. Yeah. So this is cool. This podcast is made available from Dub, which is a video communication platform. Check out dub.com. Hannah, can you give me some plugs, some URLs, your company's website, your podcast. Yes. So we are Blue Light Media. You can find us bluelight.media as our website. And then we're also active on Instagram. Uh, it's Blue Light OC. And then I'm on Instagram and Twitter at HJ Moyer, M-O-Y-E-R. And my podcast is Candidly Caffeinated on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Boom. There it is. Well, <laughs> Hannah, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Yeah. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Bye, Hannah. Yeah.